Well, amen. Seventy-five days. Um, Seventy-five days. That, that's my countdown to my baby girl's wedding. For a few of you in the room, you know how surreal that is. Um, for those of you who have not been there but do have daughters, I can tell you that it's just around the corner whether you like it or not. Uh, in the words of Kenny Chesney, um, don't blink because it's going to happen quickly. And one of the reasons that it seemed that it, at the time as being so far off in at least my mind was... Because Anna really didn't want to grow up. She uh, told us at some point that she actually, every year on her birthday for quite a while, would cry. Because she didn't want to grow up. She didn't want to be an adult. She liked being a little girl. But at some point along the line in her teenage years, she finally came to a place of embracing the inevitable. And I think there were a couple of things that contributed to that. One, she had brothers who, of course, were older and were changing and not only embraced the change, but liked the change. They, they liked all that they were beginning to experience. They were enjoying it. And at the same time, she had friends who were the same age that she was and they were growing, but they weren't changing. Um, they were wanting to do the same things um, that they did in elementary school. They wanted to dress the same way. Uh, they didn't want to drive. They didn't want to get jobs. Uh, and they seemed to buckle under normal teenage stress or pressure. That, and they tended in many ways to overreact to it. And as a result, I think she saw the difference between maturity and immaturity. And she chose maturity because immaturity was incongruous to her age. She didn't want to act in a way that was different than who she was in terms of her age. And even today, many of her same friends, they still find themselves, though physically older, they remain emotionally and socially arrested or stuck. And it's not just or, or simply foolish, it's sad. But as sad as that is, when we think about that emotional and social immaturity, it's tragic. It, actually, it's, it's, yeah, it's tragic when we think of the perennial and pervasive problem of spiritual immaturity within the church. When we think about it, I mean, I use the word tragic because the failure to mature and, and to remain in a spiritual infancy not only hinders our walk and, and hinders our living in a manner worthy of our calling, but in a real sense, there can be potentially eternal consequences. And that's not my opinion, that's... What the author of Hebrews is saying in our passage tonight. In verse 11 of chapter 5 through verse 12 of chapter 6. Um, he's giving us another warning. He's giving us another warning that we need to hear. And in our outline tonight, we're just going to look at the first few verses of that warning. You can find this outline in the back of your bulletin. We're, we're going to look at those 
verses that Daniel read earlier from 11 to 14. And we're going to see three things. We're going to see the, the, the um, crisis of spiritual immaturity. We're going to see the cause of spiritual immaturity. And then we'll, of course, see the cure. And I think it's important for us to, to hear that really we need to listen up to that. Because the crisis is real and the, and the cause is, as I said, pervasive and perennial. And the cure, though, the cure is available. It's, it's for us to appropriate appropriately. And we'll see that tonight. Let, before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, would you by your spirit allow us to consider Jesus more fully and completely tonight? And as... As we do, I pray that you will equip us to strive and to enter into the rest that you have provided for us in and through him. I would ask that you would use me in such a way that you accomplish the ends you desire through the preaching of your word that endures forever. Would you tonight give us ears to hear? And I pray these things in the more excellent name of Jesus, our great high priest. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, if you were with us or if you listened online, um, as a part of the writer's encouragement to the Hebrews to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace in the midst of the sufferings and the trials and the escalating persecution that they faced, he, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chose a very unique Old Testament character to not only compare But to exalt the priesthood of Christ as opposed to the priesthood of Aaron. So he was comparing both of their priesthood, but he was exalting Christ above Aaron's. And his desire was, as it has been, his desire is to be on this ongoing path or this, he has this ongoing need and desire to To exalt Christ as not just a high priest, but as the great high priest who is interceding on behalf of his people. And the character that he chose was the character or the, uh, well, he chose Melchizedek. Melchizedek, as you probably remember, was mentioned. The writer mentioned him and then he kind of left him and moved on. And then I said, we, we read about him, I pointed him out and then I said... Uh, because the writer left him there, I'm going to leave him there too. Tonight, we're not going to pick him back up. That's for chapter 7. But what we are going to do is we're going to look and see why he just left him there. Why mention him and then just leave him to the side. Well, in verses or in verse 11 of chapter 5, the author begins a long parenthetical statement. In other words, he has... He has begun to share about Christ and his high priesthood. And then he mentions Melchizedek and then he has to pause. And so there's this, uh, he, there's a, he's going to explain, he's going, again, another warning uh, through verse 12 of chapter 6. And then he's going to go on till verse 20. And then he's going to pick Melchizedek back up at the, end of cha- or at the beginning of chapter 7. But he, he expresses in, in this parenthetical statement is another warning, a warning uh, Really against apostasy. Because he's continuing his same method of explaining that or or encouraging 
The Hebrews, that in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the trials, in the midst of that persecution, you know, don't revert back. Do not renounce your faith. Don't forsake Christ, but to press forward and endure to the end. And so he's even here warning them against the apostasy of falling away. And he begins the third warning by presenting this crisis of spiritual immaturity. And he says about this. We have much to say, and it's hard to explain. It's pretty straightforward. He says, you know, he has a lot to say about Christ and about his priesthood and about how he's after the order of Melchizedek. But he says that it's going to be really difficult for him to explain it to them. And it has nothing to do really with the content. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with. The fact that they're not intelligent enough, it does have to do with the content. It doesn't have anything to do with the, the, whether or not they're intelligent enough. Or it doesn't have anything to do with what he's going to tell them is confusing in any way. Um, they don't lack the intelligence to understand this deep and profound truth that he wants to present to them. He says, it is going to be hard to explain since they, since you, have become dull of hearing. As we've come to appreciate, he, he's just straightforward. He doesn't mince words. He's going to hit them right where they need to be hit. The, the difficulty isn't, it's not so much about the content. It's not the material. It's in their ability. The difficulty comes in their ability to receive it. He says it's difficult because you become dull of hearing. They hadn't started out that way. It was something that had developed over time. They had become, over a period of time, they had become indifferent. They had, uh, at one time they were receptive to to the word of God. They were receptive to the things of God and, and through his word. But they'd become lazy. They'd become sluggish. They'd become lethargic. And so their spiritual hearing and their discernment had, had dulled and their attentiveness was lacking. They were no longer listening. And it was such a problem that they're listening. It was not only affecting themselves, but it was affecting everyone around them in terms of their church. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you. They had been believers for some time and they should have been coming alongside one another and teaching them of those deeper things. They should have been moving on. They should have been encouraging others in the faith. But instead, they found themselves in a position where they needed others to encourage them. Their dullness and their uh, lethargy had left them lacking in their investment of others. And so as a church, if you can imagine, because they were in this place of immaturity, they were all being shortchanged. They were not experiencing the benefit of everyone playing a part as we studied in Ephesians 4. They weren't benefiting from everybody playing their part and exercising their gifts and being filled by the Spirit and, and coming alongside one another and building up the body of Christ to full maturity. And so really, rather than this... This institution of higher learning as the church should be, they found themselves in the midst of a nursery. And that leads us to the cause. He says in verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basics 
or the basic principles of the oracles of God. They needed to be taught themselves and they didn't need to be taught anything new. It wasn't as if they were ready for the new things. They had to go back. They had to hear. They needed to be taught the basic oracles, the basic principles. In other words, the ABCs of the faith. They needed those basic building blocks upon which everything else was to be built. They had failed to respond appropriately and to build upon that which they had learned. And as a result, they needed to hear and learn those things all over again. They were adults physically, but spiritually they were infants. They looked older and they looked more mature. Particularly since they had first professed faith. They had aged, they had changed, but they were actually arrested or stuck spiritually. They were stuck in their spiritual development. And as as a result, we can imagine in Paul's words that in his letter to the Ephesians, that they were like children who were being tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And we know that because they were being pressured to go back to their Judaism. And he to get his point across, he uses the illustration that I was sharing with the children. It's a very specific illustration He says, you need milk and not solid food. And the picture is is really more so than I've painted for them is graphic. It's a very distinct picture. He says, "You you are adult infants who not only can't eat meat. You can't eat the soft carrots. You can't eat the apple and bananas. You can't eat the cream spinach. You're still nursing. And the absurdity of that picture, as the children graciously pointed out for us, the laughter is exactly what the author was aiming at. He wanted them to see the absurdity of them being infants spiritually. And he is telling them this should not be. It shouldn't be. Then in verses 13 and 14, he clarifies and helps them see what this spiritual maturity and immaturity looks like. He wants them to be able to distinguish. I mean, if he's going to point out and to warn them of this, they need to know which group they're in. And so he says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by the constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Well, first he addresses the immature. He says that they are unskilled in the word of righteousness. And this is interpreted in a couple of different ways. First, it's interpreted doctrinally to mean that they have failed to understand the doctrine of imputed righteousness. It's what he's been talking about throughout the first part of the letter. He says they're not grasping the significance of the fact that they lack personal righteousness and they actually have they have sin and guilt that they inherited from Adam and they have their own personal sin and transgressions that they've committed against the law. And and of course, they're deserving of death. 
And he also says that they're not grasping the significance of the fact that not only did they need to be forgiven of their sins, but they also needed righteousness. They also needed to be completely holy, to be completely righteous, to be accepted, to be adopted and received by the Father. And they weren't grasping the fact that that righteousness was not something that they themselves could come up with. It wasn't, it wasn't anything within themselves. It wasn't any self-righteousness in any way, but it was completely and totally the righteousness of another. It was the righteousness of another who was completely obedient on their behalf. And of course we know and they knew that because they had been told and they had been taught that that one was Jesus. But they had grown to a place where they weren't grasping anymore that their only hope of salvation was in his imputed righteousness, his righteousness that was imputed to them. It was his righteousness, his full obedience. Even when we went back, even when we go back to chapter four and and we know that it was also his, you know, being tempted and not sinning that too imputed to those who looked to him in faith. It was all about Jesus, his righteousness credited to their account. That was the basis of their salvation. But it's also interpreted another way. There are those who say that it was it's more practical in nature and that unskilled in the word of righteousness is interpreted to mean that there is a breakdown between what we were talking about the other night at leadership training, a breakdown between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. In other words, it was something that they, they, they weren't living in a manner worthy of their calling. They were believing one thing. There was a, and there was a disconnect between what they were believing and saying they were believing and what they were actually doing. So their thoughts and their emotions and their actions and their conversations and decisions reflected a belief in and therefore a need to re- rely on themselves to earn their standing before God. They were reflecting in their lives that it was their own righteousness that was meriting their security before the Father. And so really, in essence, they were, again, in Paul's words, they had fallen prey and had been taken captive. They'd been taken captive and and were trusting an empty philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. And they, they weren't. They weren't. Living according to the Lord Jesus. And of course when it comes to the interpretations. I'd rather think it's a both and rather than an either or. I mean he's saying that those who are immature fail to grasp that they are justified. They're justified by the merits of Christ. They're justified because of his righteousness that's been imputed to him. And that. And they were failing in that. And so that led to failing in that, in that lifestyle. Because they were trusting in themselves to earn or merit God, uh, their salvation that was played out in the everyday. So their lives were reflecting exactly what they were believing. And so in their day to day they were constantly striving to earn and merit the favor of the, of the Lord. And so they weren't skilled. They were unskilled in the word of righteousness. But the mature, on the other hand, have a firm grasp. Or at least are, are growing in their grasping of that word of righteousness. 
Right? And they're putting it into practice. And so the, the training and the discipline that it takes to put those things into practice was increasing. And it, was, it, it increased their ability as well to discern between that which was right and wrong. Between that which was good and evil. So as they were growing in their knowledge and their understanding of, of the word of righteousness, it was, it was playing out again in the day to day. As they were trusting in Christ for their salvation and resting in him alone for their salvation, rather than looking to themselves, it was playing out in the day to day. And they, they were living in such a way that reflected that trust in Christ. And so we know... That and why he would encourage what some of those things look like. They were paying, there were those that were paying much closer attention to that which they had heard. Right? There were those who weren't hardening their hearts. They were striving to enter into the Sabbath rest that remains. They were confidently approaching the throne of grace. And the more they did that, the more their powers of discernment were trained. And the more they, were, they disciplined themselves and desired the meat of the word. It just became a cycle. One fed the other. And as one commentator put it, he kind of summarized all this. And he says, really, the difference between the mature and the immature was this. It's sometimes well said. Use it or lose it. Either use it or we lose it. So we say, well, what about the cure? There must be a cure and there is a cure and it isn't complicated. And it's really what we've just looked at. The the cure is found throughout the passage because the answer is what? To wake up. The answer is to wake up from that spiritual lethargy and to begin a diet of solid food. A steady diet of the meat of the word and to put it into practice. And to live the lives that we've been called to live. And so we ask ourselves, so what does that look like? What does that look like for us? How do we, how do, we do that? There are four things I want us to think about tonight as we think about um, being mature or maturing in our faith. And, and to is it stem the tide, you know, push back against the, the potential of, of falling into that pattern of spiritual immaturity. And the first is this, the cure includes taking action and humbling ourselves and being honest with ourselves and asking the spirit to convict us and to identify any immaturity within us, any dullness of hearing that might be present. And that as he does, that we would repent and rest in the forgiveness that is offered because it's forgiveness that's promised. We should examine ourselves. Have, and to ask personal questions. Have I grown dull of hearing? Am I progressing in that, in that way? Are there things that I need, Father, I need by the Spirit to identify within me that is causing me, that's, that's causing my, my spiritual maturity to be stunted? And as he identifies those things, praying and asking and repenting of those things and asking him to forgive us of those things. And it begins there. Right? Because everything that follows, the other things that I'm going to say, you know, 
we're not simply going to grow just because we've committed to doing it and that we've committed to do better. It, it begins by the Lord. It begins. Our sanctification comes by the Spirit. Not by our own work. And so we need His help. We need the Spirit working within us. We're not going to be sanctified apart from the Spirit. We're not going to be perfected apart from the Spirit. We're definitely not going to perfect ourselves by the flesh. And so we're seeking and asking and, and trusting that the Spirit, of course, will work within us. There are things that we can do. We'll talk about those in just a second. But only, only by the Spirit. With His help. So not only does a cure include that humbling of ourselves and seeking and, and going to the spirit, going to the father and praying for the spirit to do his work. But we also the cure includes taking action and becoming active in our hearing. And the opposite of lethargy is being active. And that and this, too, is. Simple. Not so easy, maybe, but simple, because our shorter catechism lays it out for us. Listen to question and answers 88 through 90 from the shorter catechism. Question 88, what are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? The answer is the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are effectual to the elect for salvation. The Lord has ordained the means, simple means, for us. Question 89, how is the word made effectual to salvation? The answer is the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Preaching of the word sitting under the regularly sitting under the preaching of the word helps us in our spiritual maturity. And then question 90 how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? The answer is that the word may become effectual to salvation. We must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation and prayer. Receive it with faith and love. Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. They're repeating what the author of Hebrews said. Right? We... We must pray that the Lord would grant us grace and that he would grant us ears to hear. But we must also be active in that hearing. We must commit ourselves to being active and remaining awake, both physically and spiritually. And being consistent in the maintaining of our our diet of a steady diet of the word of God. And one old Puritan put it this way. He said the, the word benefits us if we. Make it our work with diligence to apply the word as we are hearing it. He said, cast not all upon the minister as those that will go no further than they are carried as by force. We have work to do as well as the preacher and should all the time be as busy as he. We must open our mouths and digest it for another cannot cannot digest it for us. 
Therefore, be all the while at work and abhor an idle heart and hearing as well as an idle minister. So very practically speaking, when when the bulletin and the song list are posted throughout the week, take advantage and begin preparing for worship. Very simply, when look, look back at the passage from the previous week and then look ahead to the passage that is to come. Consider and pray through the passage. And when Wes simply says, now let's prepare our hearts and minds for worship. Let's do that. Let's take that time. Let's look forward to the feasting of the word. Thirdly, the cure includes taking action and becoming more consistent in our practice that we might be skilled in the word of righteousness. So everything that was true for the readers is true for us as well. Let's let's pray for and let's discipline ourselves to pursue pursue a deeper understanding of what it means to be imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Let's consider what that means and let's consider that that we are a sinful people deserving of death and there is nothing in and of ourselves that makes us worthy or earns our salvation. But our salvation comes only in Christ. Not only has he forgiven us of our sins, but he has been obedient to the point of death on the cross and his righteousness and holiness has been imputed to us and we find ourselves in him. Let's pray and and discipline ourselves to concentrate on those things. We we need to remember that we need the righteousness of another. And we need to pray and discipline ourselves to understand that it's his righteousness, his full obedience, his facing temptation, his sinlessness that's been, been credited to our account. And as a result, we should live in light of that. Our lives should reflect what it is that we believe. We need to pray and discipline ourselves to pursue a greater consistency between our orthodoxy and our orthopraxy. We need to live as those who understand that we have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. Therefore, we don't have to live in a way that that seeks to earn or merit the favor of God as far as our justification is concerned. And so our thoughts and emotions and actions and decisions and con- con- uh, conversations should reflect that belief. And so we need to pray and discipline ourselves to pursue those deeper understandings of the fact that we're justified by the merits of Christ. We can live in the freedom of that. And so we need to... Quite honestly, we need to stop seeking to justify ourselves through our marriages and through our parenting and through our friendships and through our employers and through through our, our successes in the classroom or on, on the ball field. All of those ways that we're just constantly striving and seeking to justify ourselves before God and before ourselves and before others. We just need to stop. (laughs) And then when we do, we need to repent. And try again. And strive and rest and strive and rest. We need 
growing in our faith will be reflected in our refraining from a, a lifestyle of performance. And resting in Christ's performance on our behalf. Finally, the cure includes taking action and becoming the teachers that we should be. And I'm not talking about the, the formally within the education ministry of the church. That will come someday. We, we look forward to, to that potential. But I'm talking about in the everyday. The everyday where we have opportunities to teach. We have the opportunities to teach our children. We have the opportunity to bring the gospel to bear in the conversations that we have at home and in the workplace We have the opportunity to share opinions. Sometimes we're asked for advice and and to share our wisdom. And we need to do all of those things and do it from a biblical perspective and bringing the gospel to bear. And speaking of that righteousness in which we rest, because everybody around you is stuck there too. They're stuck in that place of striving to justify themselves. And they need to hear the answer. You need to hear the answer of the Lord Jesus and his gospel and his dying, his living and dying on the behalf of sinners just like them and just like you and just like me. So let's encourage one another to to pay. And we do that with each other as well. We need to encourage one another to continue to pay much closer attention to that which we've heard and to not harden our hearts. We need to encourage each other to to hold fast our confession and and to approach the throne of grace with confidence and to and we need to ask one another about what what is our what type of diet what type of diet do we have because as the writer is encouraging his readers he's encouraging us we are encouraged to stay the course and endure to the end. May it be so. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you now by your...